that moment where it was like I was getting hit in the face and going, oh God, I've been them. Mm -hmm. How many times did I have a leader or a manager that just didn't seem to like me or did not, did not want to buy what I was selling? I remember being so distraught and frustrated, like, why don't they get me? Don't they see how hard I'm trying? Welcome back, everybody, to Building Better Games, where we help leaders create better video games through holistic leadership. The simple, everyday conversations you have during development can help you if done well or utterly blow up in your face if done poorly. I know from personal experience. Game development requires epic amounts of collaboration and conversations that you have every day are a huge part of that. Have you ever been in these situations? You've got the feeling that you and someone else are talking past each other, and no matter how many times you re-explain yourself, things just get worse and worse. You feel like a key leader or someone above you just does not get you, and you have no idea what you're doing wrong. You've experienced frustration because everyone else in a meeting seems to be focused on different things than you. You've brought up what seemed like an innocuous data point, yet somehow your team is frustrated and your boss is pissed off. If you've been in these situations, we feel your pain, and you are not alone. In this podcast today, we're going to show you how to level up your day-to-day communication skill with your peers and the folks above you. We'll show you how to surface the thinking and motivations of others and how to avoid the common traps we've all fallen into that result in a foot in our mouths. With us today is a good friend, master communicator, seasoned coach, and one of my favorite humans, Jeff Hackert. Together, we're going to rip the lid off of communication and give you the tools you need to be a conversational superhero and help you ship a better game. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. Tell the folks a little bit about yourself because we love you to death and we want them to love you too. Well, likewise, I've been working in software for most of my adult life, somewhere in the 30-year range. I have worked for a few game development companies. I was at Riot, uh, where uh, we all work together. I've been at EA and I've done some, some other work, smaller studios, some startups, but I've written software in almost every category. So CPG, like tech, you name it, I've goofed it up. <laughs> I wanted to ask you something right off the bat, Jeff. I've known you for a hot minute now, and I know you do a bunch of different things. And I knew you were always really interested in the human dynamic, like you talked about it a lot. Yeah. But it seems like lately in your career, you've really leaned into that. What made you get to a place where you're like, this is really what I'm passionate about. For me, it doesn't feel lately, although what you observe is probably just sort of craft over time. So maybe I've just mm -hmm. finally gotten passable at, at human communication. But it was early in my career. I'll just tell the story the way that I've told it to anyone who's ever asked that question. When I was young in my career, what was rewarded, the kinds of behaviors that re were rewarded were not it, what I would put in the category of effective communication. So I was often used by managers or leaders as some kind of attack animal. So they just throw me in some meeting and it was my job to make someone else feel bad about what they didn't know. My job really was to be right. And so early, uh, I'm talking maybe the first decade of my career, I really was developed into a, a kind of an asshole. So, and when I say that, I mean it. Like I was a very difficult person to work with, a very difficult person to communicate with. And I'm certain that that wasn't just in my professional life, although it was encouraged. 
and rewarded. I was rewarded financially. I was rewarded with position, but there weren't too many people who were like, I'd really like to go into a tiny room and spend as many hours as I can with that guy. Nobody would sign up for that. For me, that's so surprising <laughs> to hear. Having only known you perhaps later, mm-hmm. um, and it, of like of people that I wouldn't mind going into like a, a small room with and like talking about stuff, like you're high on that list. So that's, I'll be honest, I was, I was pretty surprised to hear you describe that. I can't help but wonder and I can't help but ask what your opinion is on, on why that's there. Because, mm. I mean, I think when I first got into this field, I remember that there was always a backdrop of this. We don't have time and you need to be strong and you need to be tough. Like results orientation was the justification for this, like coming in and having the right answer made you the best leader, made you the best communicator. What's going on there? Well, I have a theory that in areas of high uncertainty and high stakes, This is maybe a natural communication option for humans. Mm -hmm. I believe in this theory so strongly that I've gone back to school to study personality theory, and I have real questions about why people fight, why people argue, why they're aggressive in communication, and and I'm hoping to be able to stop doing software someday and focus on this question. One of the things you mentioned earlier that I loved was you you said, we're all living in a bubble. Mm-hmm. And that, that really resonated with me. One thing that comes up is I remember the first time as a manager when I had several direct reports and I really tried hard to make sure that they were different kinds of people, but I found myself naturally biasing towards certain communication styles over others. Yeah. And I think that as I communicated with my direct reports more and more, the ones that I sort of naturally clicked with in that way, mm-hmm. I started to, it actually started to have a relationship to trust. Yeah. And so it was like, if you communicated like me and you gave you gave me data in the format that I like to consume it as your manager, then I would naturally go, you're a more trustworthy individual. If you were speaking a different language to me, I, it didn't matter if you were doing just as good of a job, I would naturally be more skeptical of your approach. Yeah. And it was that moment where it was like, I was getting hit in the face and going, Oh God, I've been them. Mm -hmm. How many times did I have a leader or a manager that just didn't seem to like me or did not want to buy what I was selling? Right. I remember being so distraught and frustrated. Like, why don't they get me? Don't they see how hard I'm trying? And I think this all goes back into that idea of like, we're all in bubbles. And I know you've seen more practical examples of this than anybody. Like, what are some that come to mind or like, what are some of the big learnings for you over the years in that department? Okay, we talk about the big learnings and lessons, but first I want to do a little bit more definition of what that bubble is because I think this is yeah. I think yeah. this is really important. So right, we're all running around with a big fishbowl over our heads, right? I can supply a link to Chris Ardris's ladder of inference. The ladder of inference is the base upon which our beliefs are built. So it's like data in the world, our observations of it, our selection from those observations. It builds all the way up to a set of beliefs. And there are some self-referential loops that get caused by this. First of all, once we get to the level of belief, our beliefs dictate what data we, what future data we will pull, which simply reinforces existing belief. That's part of the bubble. A big part of the bubble is like your lived experience. So who you are, how you are in the world. And then there's a bunch of aspirational stuff going on. There's who you are, who you want to be, 
how the world is, how you want it to be, how much agency you perceive yourself as having over that. And then there's the corollary. What are these people I'm communicating with? Who are they and what do they want? Who do they want to be? How do they want the world to look? What agency do they have? Which is normally not the question we ask, by the way, because other people's agency is power over us. Mm. Almost always when we're communicating around high stakes issues. So if you and I have to come to a decision and we don't already agree, your agency is going to be felt by me as power, right? And then what I do with that or how I respond to it uh, has a lot to do with how tight that helmet is on my head or that fishbowl is on my head. So this is the bubble, right? It's kind of who we are and what we are experiencing and what we want to get out of the conversation. I like the idea of a fishbowl because it's clear. It also reflects in a distorted way. Yes. And I, I like that because it distorts the exterior and it also distorts your ability to see yourself reflected. Mm-hmm. I think both of those are, are very true when it comes to the idea of we are, we are all in our own bubble. We can't see ourselves very clearly and also the rest of the world. Yeah. Knowing yourself is a big part of this. I'm a big advocate for using existing and free personality tests like the big five to kind of get a handle on what your default settings are. You can't really tweak anything if you don't know what the defaults are. Definitely. So we're in this bowl, the other person's in their own bowl, and we're trying to find common cause. We're trying to get somewhere together. This can create a problem. The selection bias you were talking about is our preference for other fuzzy shapes that align with ours. And those fuzzy shapes, the the most common way that we know it is that there'll be some resonance between their communication style and ours. It doesn't have to be a one-to-one mapping, but it needs to resonate with us for whatever reason. And that's why you trust people who talk like you, think like you, and uh, people who don't talk like you, it's harder to trust. Mm -hmm. Back to your point about the fishbowls and like, you know, some, somebody might be speaking blue and I'm speaking red. Yeah. It reminds me of this idea that, Hey, you know, one of the most basic pieces of education you could give people is like, Hey, did you know that there's actually red, blue, green, yellow? Right. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't even, I never would have thought about that before you mentioned it. So now I just think that my manager must think I'm an asshole. Right. Right. <laughs> like he must really not like me. Did I piss him off in the break room one, you know, at some point a couple months ago? And I just don't remember. It is that like, was it something I said? Yeah. Kind of thing. That yeah. feeling, but not recognizing that it could literally just be as simple as you mentioned. Yeah. As like you're talking past each other because you just it is almost like a different dialect. Yeah. You know? It really is. I I worked with a CEO who I loved. I love this guy. Our communication was a constant source of struggle. And I don't know if it ever got as good as it could have gotten for him. But one of the things that I learned to do is, so he spoke on the main in closed power. And I have feelings about that. Define what that means a little bit. Okay, so I'm using terms that maybe your audience might, might not be familiar with. So I'm talking like from the David Cantor, William Lair model. So just a very brief introduction. Cantor's idea was is that there are four parts of speech that uh, he defined, and I'll tell you what they are, and I'll tell you what they sound like. The four parts of speech are move, and move sounds like, hey, let's go get something to eat. It's a proposal right? It's going to create some action and we're going to do something together. Then there is a pose. 
Oppose sounds like, no, nah, I'm not hungry, right? Oppose typically stops the action. It's important to know that oppose in its natural form is usually about quality. This is important because we often personalize opposition. We, we, make, mm. we make it about the person opposing instead of about the quality of the thing being discussed or opposed. Then there's follow. That sounds like, yep, I'm starving. Let's go, right? It's going to join with and move that action forward. And then the last is he called bystand. And bystand is non-moral, non-judgmental communication about the communication itself. And it sounds like, hey, I noticed that we're having difficulty deciding whether we should go out to eat or not. It's just stating the status quo in the communication. And so uh, within those parts of speech, then there are sort of default communication styles that we have, and that can be power. So power, exactly what it sounds like, grab the fire extinguisher, mow the lawn. It's a lot of like, it's exactly what it sounds like. I have power and in this relationship or in this conversation. The word command comes to mind. It absolutely does. Yeah. That's usually what it sounds like. There's affect. So affect is feelings. People who speak primarily in affect, unsurprisingly, will say things like, I feel hungry. I feel like it's time to quit working. I feel like it's time to start working. Right? They're going to express their emotions on the main. Then there is meaning. Meaning is usually abstract. So somebody who speaks in analogies, metaphors, what they're looking to do is they're looking to, to paint a picture that creates resonance. So the belief is, is that if I use words and I paint a particular picture and you resonate with that picture, then I'll know that we both share the same understanding. I'm going to say something back to you because this sure. is actually, I, I've heard this model before. You know, we were just talking about it, right? And, yeah. and I wanted to go like, okay, do, am I, do I have this correctly? Because when I think about that, it's the power, the affect, and the, and the meaning there are ways of attempting to move the conversation or the action around the conversation the way I want. So to come back to your example of like, I, you know, let's go get something to eat. Yeah. Feeling sounds like I feel like, I'm, like you said, I feel hungry. Let, you know, can we get something to eat? Yeah. And if I were to oppose that in meaning, I might say something like, I don't think it's the right time for that right now or something like that, where, it, you know, it's again, I'm going, I'm going into like, ah, the timing is wrong. Yeah. Or you might, you might tell a story about the person who ate too soon. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. We all know what happened to that guy. Yeah. Well, don't right. we? Like... Right. And okay. So, and so that's, so that's basically how they're manifesting. So the power is the command aspect. The feeling is the essentially, I'm not going to say appeal to feelings, but it's the, I'm going to bring up my feelings and I'm hoping that that's actually a relevant part of this conversation. Yeah. And then the thinking is I'm going to bring up data or, or the thoughts, what I'm mm -hmm. thinking about this. And I'm hoping that's relevant to getting us where we're trying to go. Oh, yes. Well, I think the underlying motivation is you're always looking to find your people. Mm -hmm. So because it's a default, we have the expectation that others will hear our communication style mm -hmm. and understand it for what it is. And this goes back to what Aaron was saying. This is why sometimes people look at you and you talk they look like they want to murder you and you think, well, they must not like me, but it could just be that they're having difficulty processing because your communication style is very different than theirs. Yeah. And back to your original point, or I should say your original 
software games industry anecdote about rightness, the concept of rightness. (laughs) Yeah. I do sometimes feel like when we get into these meetings as producers and leaders and discipline leads and stuff like that, there's almost this like, how high can you get your personal rightness gauge? Mm -hmm. And again, that bias towards people who talk like me have higher rightness. I trust what they say more. And in reality, there's there could be negative correlation to that. Potentially. For sure. Yes. And and yes. so that I think is that big aha moment for me when it comes to the day to day where it's like, oh, shit, I actually really need to figure out how these other key leaders around me, like what color they're speaking in. Yeah. And, and so I can help with the translation a little bit. You know what I mean? So we can connect and meaningfully work together. Yeah. In the Cantor model, that's an interventionist. In our normal model, that's the role of a facilitator to try to help mm. bridge different communication styles. Yeah. This is so fascinating because now, again, as I'm thinking about this, I'm realizing like a, we were all at Riot. You know, again, power isn't a negative thing. It's just one of the places where people tend to operate within and it can be positive or negative. It's spiky though. It's spiky. People yeah. experience it on the whole. Even people who are de- by themselves uh, are themselves default power and, speakers feel yeah. a pinch when power is the dominant yeah. So I'm thinking about this in, in that, like when we were all at Riot, Riot had a lot of power yes. in its communication style. Yes. And I remember being very frustrated, similar story to Aaron was saying earlier, because I'm a meaning person. And I think I was equally frustrating to my manager. I would constantly try to paint a picture of like, hey, this is what's <laughs> happening. And I would be attempting to create resonance with people who just did not have the time for it. And I'm like, why don't you care about this? And realizing now that if I'd recognized, oh, they communicate in power, I don't need to paint them a picture and hope they make the right decision. I need to walk into that conversation and say, hey, I need your help with this. Just being direct about it and like in some sense commanding, but that idea of here, I'm communicating in power to you. This is what I need from you. They're like, great, I know what to do and I can understand that going on. Well, this is exactly the, so the story I was telling about the CEO, Barry, if you're by chance listening, I'm so sorry. You're a good man. It was my fault. So so Barry closed power. Sorry, there's these modifiers, closed and open. Open meaning I'm open for feedback. Closed meaning I'm not. So you don't really, like in the example of get the fire extinguisher, you really don't want to have a conversation. You just want the action, right? So that was Barry's default model. It's not that he couldn't or wasn't open to having different conversations in different styles. He could. We're all capable of using the full range, mm-hmm. but uh, it was his default. Here I would come very much like you, Ben, where I, I'm high in, there's open, close, random. I'm high in random meaning. So I like to pluck stories out of the universe. Like, do you know, the, like he'd be like, how's the TPS report coming? And I would be like, you know, the Sumerians. And he'd be like, oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. The Sumerians actually <laughs> created the first etched in stone TPS reports. So are you aware of that? That's right. And they had to be done on Saturday, uh, interestingly <laughs> enough. <laughs> so, yeah, so he would hear this and, and I could see it on his face. And we had a regular like lunch meeting. And so I had an interventionist in the organization, this guy, Kurt, who was the CFO. And so I would have this coffee with Kurt where Kurt would listen patiently to my stories about the ancient Sumerians or whatever other things I would bring. And he would ask me questions like, what does that mean in relation to this project? And and then I would tell him. And I felt, I walked out of those coffees 
I swear, Kurt, I, I love you to this day. I miss you. I don't have a person like that. I haven't had <laughs> since we stopped working together. And it's like a giant hole in my soul because he's such a good listener, which is really where we're going with this, right? He would really just take his fishbowl off, stick his head in mine, mm. right? And that really helped me because I had this toolkit at this point. We had most of the toolkit that we're discussing here. But I was still like on my little Bambi legs trying to figure out how to, how to use it. Anyway, so I got this big clue that Kurt's doing the thing that I know we all need to do. I'm going to do this thing with Barry and I'm going, to, I'm going to try to come prepared. And at the top of the meeting, I'm going to give him in his voice the things that I know are most important to him. And then I'm going to ask him, is it, you know, is this the thing? Are there any other things you want to discuss? And I'm going to reserve speaking in my native voice until he has the information of the things that he needs. This is really the heart of the message that I want to give you is that, that being willing to surrender your defaults and step out of your bowl and into theirs is really the way. Yeah. yeah. There's something that strikes me, which is like, I need something. I'm hungry for something and it's some, and I'm hungry for something specific. Yeah. Like I, I've run into that a lot when doing stakeholder management and reporting up things mm -hmm. to more senior leaders. It's almost like you're talking about where we're going to pitch the tent and set up the campfire and I'm dying of starvation. Yeah. There's some biting concern. Yeah. And I need, I need to hear you tell me that that concern is resolved first yeah. So I heard a couple of things there. So one is, yes, like back in our metaphor of the fishbowl, since we're, we're living in, in meaning now in this conversation. Yeah. These are like local concerns that can get in the way of getting to whatever it is that needs to be discussed. Notice there's no judgment. These can be positive or negative. That's judging them is not really the issue because what we're trying to get to is what moves stuck conversation forward. And the most stuck you can be is at the place where you're not actually in communication. We assume because we all can speak the same language that we can all communicate verbally with each other. This is a huge mistake. It is not true. So to get out of the trap that we're in, which is, are all the sort of the common conditions when we come together, is we have to first acknowledge that real communication with others requires that we do some additional work, right? Okay, when I come into this space, I have to do my best to take this helmet off. I have to be willing maybe to wear someone else's. Is leaving your current reality and joining with somebody in theirs. The reason that that person looks like they have a headache when they hear you talk is they're like, there's no way I'm putting my head inside that bowl of random meaning or that bowl of closed power. I am gonna stay here, yeah. and then I'm gonna narrow, I'm gonna lock down a version of reality that reinforces my rightness. Then I'm gonna call that person kind of crazy, or weird, or dumb, or... Yeah, for me, when somebody communicates deeply in affect, it, my instinct, my knee-jerk reaction is impractical, impractical, impractical. And when somebody communicates, and especially in like, 
like you said, like chaotic meaning, mm-hmm. like I'm just like, or random, sorry, yeah. when they, <laughs> random meaning, pardon me. Uh, that's my, okay. my, my response, see, that's my bias right there. My response is very telling. Yeah. <laughs> chaos. Chaos. Yeah. Just absolute chaos. Like, like it doesn't even matter. Like, and it's so weird because I love to muse as well. Mm-hmm. But like, I'm very much of the mindset that there's like, you create an arena in which musing is appropriate and that that arena needs to have clear boundaries. <laughs> because if that arena has no boundaries, then we all might as well just run around in loincloths. <laughs> because that's, that's like, what, that's what my mind tells me. Right. It's true. And I, and it's funny because building that bridge has been so challenging for me in my career. Like I had a direct report who is one of the most impressive people I've ever met in my life, just like somebody who's deeply connected. Mm. And if she wasn't on my team, I think my team would have been much worse for not having her there. Mm -hmm. And she often communicated in affect. And I remember we butted heads a lot. And I very much look back and regret what I, maybe a little harsh, what feels like my own immaturity and being able to like, bring in and and accept and acknowledge and internalize and value her affect because she had her finger on the pulse of stuff that I just didn't. Yeah. And again, I think a better version of me rolling back the clock to that point would have been like, thank God you're here. Yeah, for sure. I, I absolutely understand. And I would say that the idea that it's a better version of you to my ear is maybe not the right way to think about this. And here's what I mean. It's unlikely, largely unlikely, that people's personalities are going to change dramatically. So we should just know that. And so it's important to know what our personalities are comprised of, what our communication styles are. I think that the expectation that I'm going to change or that someone else should change, it's a very long movie, right? So better to change the circumstances. One way to do that is by just changing, like changing the communication style you're using. But another way, which I think we've we've all used, uh, all the three of us have used to great success, is to bring in an interventionist or to bring in a facilitator who can help bridge that gap. It's the most obvious, but least often used tool in an organization. I think that being organizations, we are afraid to do this. So this is why we revert to power usually. You almost have to dance in the chaos a little bit and not the chaos of the people, the chaos of the environment Yeah, and the chaos of the uncertainty like that is, and Ben and I often talk about this, like, hey, that's there whether you accept it or not. And one of the things we're skeptical of when there's an obsession or a over leaning into power, Mm -hmm. like, let's do this, grab the fire hydrant, make the document you know, figure out the dependencies. Like it's this illusion of control. Yeah. And what it does is it defers the chaos is actually all it does. Yeah. And and unfortunately, when that chaos is finally reckoned with, it's so much more painful, so much more painful because, but I thought we knew this. I thought we figured this out. I thought we had a plan. I thought we hired the right engineers. And it's like, and again, I know that this is a little bit on the abstract side, but like this is so damn relevant to video game development because we see this over and over and over and over again. And it's like, what would it look like to talk to each other, to communicate, to build relationships that assumed that we don't see everything? 
Yeah. Getting comfortable with the uncertainty here, I think, extends even to the way that for sure that game companies communicate with their audiences. Look, there's two things that are true. You have to start with an opinion about why your game is interesting or why people should play it. We have to talk about discernment here. I don't want people to get the wrong idea. One form of defaulting to power is defaulting to uh, democracy, right? Which is just the many overpowering the few, right? Which is not necessarily bad for politics or whatever, but can be horrible for like intercompany decision-making. You have to start with an opinion. That's where your product starts. So if you don't have an opinion, you're never going to be able to use these techniques to get to one. But once you start down that road, you, you like just once you're on the map, you're on the map. And now we have to navigate this game, right? And here's where we just have to upfront accept the uncertainty. We're actually quite good, I think, as human beings of just creating, instilling order Mm -hmm. as an imperative. And like, I think this is what I imagine a company that's like, that's it. Enough of this crap. We're using this process. Everyone's using this process now. No questions asked. If you don't like it, you can take a hike. Right. Look at all the people doing the stuff that we want them to do now. And then it's like, but are we making anything that anybody wants? Right. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I've, I've had that experience multiple times. If you, yeah. look, if you look at the source, what's the actual problem under discussion? Well, we don't have a uniform set of tools, as if that's even a thing that you need. <laughs> like, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. But, but we're just taking that. And then someone is like, the problem now is indecision or too many decisions. What's the solution? I'll make one more decision. And this is what gets discussed quite a bit is we're simplifying. We're taking something from the domain that we would call complex and we're now placing it in the domain that we would call simple. Maybe that's what you're doing. It's possible that's what you're doing. I am going to, if I had to bet though, if it was Vegas, I'm going to say improbable. Like what is actually happening is I'm just feeding myself a giant helping of mac and cheese. Yep. I j- just yeah. a great big bite of comfort food. I just want to feel better. And yeah. that's it. Yeah. It's like a shot in the arm. The other one, uh, we had a, a really talented product lead on the show like months and months back. And he described this problem as like the team that hasn't shipped or delivered anything in like six years, but every so often they like recycle their leadership team and the new leader comes in and it's like, here's the new, 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 new plan. Mm-hmm. This one's, and they're just getting all the fanfare and the stakeholder alignment. And like, oh, yeah. and, and it's just, and the team's sitting there and they're just like, we've just been through this so many times now. This is, we're on plan number seven. Right. And nothing really changes. It's like the more things change, the more they stay the same kind of. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is a lack of willingness, I would say, to engage with the complexity. So let's assume that it is actually complex, which it it may well be. We do not remove complexity by declaring it to be simple. (laughs) I I mean, I wish you could. It would be great. There was a a leader, I'll say a senior leader in the army that I worked with. Mm -hmm. He was sort of your classic infantry leader type. And now he's working in staff shops where we're like sort of compiling reports about equipment and, you know, whatever it was. And he had this tendency to, he'd ask for something and then he'd say, okay, cool. How long is that going to take? Before we'd figured this out, we'd be like, oh man, that's going to, that's going to take a while. Get all that information together. I've got to get to these four companies. The companies have to go to their platoons. Mm -hmm. Like then that's how I'll still ladder back up. It's going to take a couple weeks or something. And he'd say like, how about 24 hours? 
And at first, like we were, again, we were stupid inside of that system because it was closed. Mm -hmm. He was not asking. He was saying, you will have information back for me in 24 hours that is a filled out spreadsheet of the type I described. And the problem with that that I saw was that one, he had the authority to do that. Two, he was not at all interested in anybody's reasons why maybe that's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. And three, he always got a report in 24 hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so from his perspective, it worked. Yeah. This is that thing though, if you if you ask, and I think this applies to game dip, if you ask an artist to get you a tree, in five minutes, you will get a five-minute tree. That's right, yeah. And maybe that's all you need, right? Mm-hmm. And and if so, great. But if you needed the three-day tree mm-hmm. and you asked for the five-minute tree, that's going to have consequences down the road. And you're instantiating behavior. Because, boy, I'll tell you, after this had happened a few times, nobody bothered to tell. Everybody was just like, how long is that going to take all you? Like, 24 hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's fascinating is the value of what we actually gave him was essentially zero. So we, but we still had to put together the report. Yeah. Did he ever ask, like, if I gave you 26 hours, would it be better? Never, right? Right. No, no, no. It was 24 hours because that's how long a long thing takes. No, I guarantee that dude believes that everything that ever needed to be done could be done in under 24 hours. And anyone who estimates any higher is just a liar. Right. Yeah. <laughs> lazy. They're yeah. lazy. If you worked hard enough, you could get this in 24 hours. Malingerer, I think, is the military term for that, isn't it? That's yes. right. <laughs> yeah. But but we do that. We do that all the time. We ask for the plan tomorrow. We mm-hmm. ask for this by this time. We And, and the deadline is often, I won't say arbitrary, because it's actually usually not arbitrary. But if you actually macro out far enough, it is arbitrary. It's yeah. because somebody said that by the end of the month, I wanted this mm-hmm. three layers up from you. And so now there's something that you need to do that has to be done by here because, and it's like, well, wait, what's the value of that thing? Right. Again, that's right. I, you know, what's the value? The, you get the five minute tree. Yeah. This is where I think you need measure. So if you can have the conversation about how are we going to know whether this is taking us closer to our goal? So I have this like mental framework that I use. That, that all this falls under, which is that what I want to do when I'm getting together with individuals or a group is I first want to try to get to a shared vision of what the outcome is supposed to be. Where are we trying to get to, right? And then I know just because experience, right, that it's going to be broken into probably multiple efforts and lots of different directions. So now I don't care about the I don't care about the big picture anymore. I only care that we agreed on what that outcome is to look like. We can have that negotiation over time. So given that framework, now I need to focus my details on and this is true for like for gaming companies, for start anyone who, who's not raking in gazillions of dollars every day, but who's trying to get trying to ship something to to players. You've got a limited runway. So now we need to go from like, okay, this is my, this is the goal for this part of the org, or this is the goal for the thing we're trying to accomplish. And what measures am I going to use to know whether it's getting me closer to my goal? Have you ever heard a leader be like, you expose the uncertainty, you expose them to it. Here's all the uncertainty. You want to enter into this multi-billion dollar marketplace. Here are all the challenges. And they're like, well, that's why I hired all you smart people. Yes. And you're like, so go make me a plan. Then you make them a plan. And then three months later, he's like, I don't feel like we're anywhere near the plan. And you're like, remember the uncertainty? And he's like, well, why did I hire all of you then? Exactly. Why didn't I go with the guy who had the who was going to make it simple? Right. That's the guy I should have hired. <laughs> right. He said he could get it done in 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> right, right. So I guess our metaphor for today is the fishbowl. That's fishbowl communication. Mm-hmm. I live in my reality where all work gets done in less than 24 hours, or I hired smart people, they will simplify the complexity, or I join in the conversation. I get into the conversation with them and I do some perspective taking with my team, with my co-leaders, with my whoever. This is really, when we talk about empathy, this is really what we're talking about. Like I, in order to have empathy, I must have some common framework. Otherwise, it's just my projection, right? If I can actually get inside of your frame and way of working, then I'm I don't have to make as many assumptions to empathize with you, to try to understand why you're behaving the way you're behaving. Like I'm thinking about myself again as a manager. And a lot of times somebody's just spamming me with meaning. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, I can listen to all that. I really can. But really what I need you to tell me first is like, are we fucking on track or not? Yeah. Can you just like, are, is the thing going to get done or not? By the way, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to yell at you. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be mad. I just, but I need that first to feel okay. And there is kind of an emotional thing for that because it's the way my brain works. You know what I mean? I like that you brought it back to the pots. (laughs) Let's do a little communication therapy role play, Yeah. right? So it's comforting that you're not going to murder me. I like that you added that into the conversation so that that's not one of the many anxieties I have to have. But if you reframe it... I have zero kills in my management record. (laughs) Don't worry. I have a a spotless record. (laughs) But how could you reframe that as an ask to your direct Uh, report? Yeah, yeah. What would you say is the overall state of the project? Oh, I'm going to go even farther. I'm talking about you asking for what you need in the communication. Okay, yeah. Why make it a mystery to the other person? If you know yourself... Just saying, like, I I think right now Mm. to really be present and hear you extrapolate, (laughs) I first need to hear... Extrapolate's a nice word, Jack. Give me some slack. Man. I love is you're fishing around for like the least judgy words. <laughs> but yeah, go ahead. So much extrapolating around yeah. here. All these extrapolators. Can we de-strapolate a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I, I like that. The, the human way would be to say, hey, I really need to hear right now where we're at with the project overall. Yeah. I'm happy to continue the conversation afterwards. Yeah. I mean, it could be that way. I think that's fine. Some people might be a little powerish in, in, to their hearing, but I think it's fine. I think I am often very powerish to other people's that, hearing. That's yeah. okay. Like that, right? That's who you are. But I, I, which is okay. Like it's okay to be that person. In a fire, you're the guy I want. You don't, you don't want to hear, let me tell you about Plato's metaphor of the cave. <laughs> the house is on fire, you dummy. <laughs> let me tell you about how the Sumerians ha- invented modern firefighting techniques yeah, exactly. in 3000 BC. <laughs> you know, Japanese fire jackets became the kimonos used in judo. Oh, well, great. Well, uh, I think you should put one on because we're all going to fry. Yeah, right. So I think just back to your intro, the wise person in that conversation mm. asks for what they need in a way that allows the other person to feel like they're being invited in. Yeah. So that's that's a practical piece of advice for leaders is like if you feel you're the one feeling or becoming frustrated. Yeah. Like think about what it is that you need. Consider that. Like you said, think about your own fishbowl mm-hmm. and then ask. You could ask for it. You could make a request. You certainly can. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a move, right? You're yeah. making a proposal. I think you can start that with a bystand. Like I noticed myself checking out and when when we start these meetings uh, informally, 
I'm wondering if we can change the format. Yeah. I don't like it when I do that. So it's better when it's framed about what you observe about yourself. Mm -hmm. And then you're asking that person to help you. The key here is your humanity and their humanity. I'm going to construct a space in which our communication improves for both of us. Because your assumption is, is that you're the only person that's suffering in that conversation. You're forgetting that the other person is also not really digging the stuck communication. Yeah. They're walking out going, what is wrong with that person? Yeah. Right? So this is what I mean by stuck. We come together to communicate. Other things happen. The communication remains exactly where it was. We both go away with the illusion that communication has taken place. But in yeah. fact, the conversation does not move forward. It's not complete. That's really interesting. The question I have for you is what kinds of things do you see in game development amongst leaders sort of gently direct them to a better place? Yeah, there's a couple of game companies that I'm currently working with. And what I notice in in the communication is their perception is that the communication is broken. And that usually translates into the belief that the person they're communicating with is broken. And I usually try to help shift through perspective taking. You can't make somebody see people differently. The coaching that I give, the direct coaching, is to try to use the default communication style of the person they perceive in this way to see if that moves the communication forward. Mm. It usually does. It may not get them the whole way. I'm not claiming that you, you go in and you use meaning now and everything magically gets better, but it does move the conversation forward. We go to great lengths to attract and hire top talent in the world to work on our games. And then if we get into a situation where we can't effectively communicate and creatively problem solve, whose fault is it? Is it the fault of the top talent? Right. Like that can't be. So I think the right place to the extent that fault is important, the right place to place it is that it's the communication itself that is the problem. Mm. And then we set about the job of fixing that. So before we try to fix people, we should try to fix the communication. And the chief skill I try to impart is this idea of meta listening. Really all my communication, even though we talk about the two sides of it, it's all aimed at better listening because you can't really get any kind of improvement if you can't listen, right? But I want them to take the perspective that it is the communication and not the person. So are you a capable and effective listener? Yes or no. You need to gather some data and seek people's opinions to help you understand that because you are not capable of diagnosing yourself. And then you need to understand your own set of your own history and your personality. And so this is where I really recommend that people use the freely available and scientifically backed personality tests, like the big five personality test. Highly recommend it. All this stuff is so thought-provoking. It's really interesting. I have some like major takeaways oh, good. from this. Yeah. So. Good. good. I'm glad it helped. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you coming on. You're welcome. Feel free to reach out to me, uh, Jeff at supergroup.co. If you're looking for advice on finding a coach, Aaron and Ben, amazing coaches. But if you're if you're looking to, to connect, reach out and I can help you find a coach, or maybe it turns out that you and I can work together. It'd be amazing. So I want to quickly summarize how you may be able to break through some communication barriers when you really need to communicate with someone else and don't seem to be able to. First, don't jump to the conclusion that the other person is broken or ignorant or malicious or anything like that. 
Second, recognize that you live in a bubble and so does everyone else. We don't see the world the same way. We are different and unique. Three, take the time to learn about who you are. Free Big Five personality test can help with this. Then, fourth, take the time to learn how the other person communicates. For understanding communication styles, tools like the Cantor model can be really helpful. Fifth, see if you can communicate with the other person in their style rather than your own. So if you tend to communicate in affect and they tend to communicate in meaning, see if you can communicate to them in meaning. That'll be hard, but give it a shot. If none of that works, see if you can find a third party or interventionist who can help bridge the communication gap. Remember, just because we're all speaking the same language does not mean we are communicating. It's really hard. Put in the effort to improve the communication and the circumstances, and you might be surprised at the outcome. If you found this episode helpful, please take a moment right now to rate or review us wherever you're listening. It really goes a long way towards helping us understand if we're adding value, if we're being helpful to those out there in the wild. Thank you so much for taking the time and we're looking forward to making more content for you in the future. Thanks.